This week on the Horror Podcast, we're talking about Eaton Babies, Miskatonic University, YouTube comment sections, Deep Ecology, and the movie Mother. Welcome to episode 38, season 2 of the Horror Pod Class. My name is Tyler, and by day, I'm a mild-mannered teacher. And by night, I am married to the mother of dragons, the breaker of chains, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and when I'm not putting out her fires, wink, 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 <laughs> I run the dragon-sized media company Signal Horizon with my buddy Mike over here, who also happens to be uh, my co-host of the Horror Pod Class. What up, Mike? It's the day after Mother's Day. We are talking about the movie Mother. So, uh, how's your mom? She's doing great, man. Did you catch the latest uh, Game of Thrones? Oh, shit, yeah. Yep. Yep, you know what they call it in my neck of the woods. They call it Huegos del Tronos. Ah, I like it. It sounds kind of cooler. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, The the, the problem is is that they use the same word for a child's high chair as they do for a throne. So it also oh. kind of sounds like Game of High Chairs, but whatever. That'd be that'd be a cool spinoff. Yeah, I would totally watch that. And uh, frankly speaking, anything that can make that uh, show a little bit cooler, because I've spent all day on like TV critic, film critic. No, no spoilers. No spoilers. No spoilers. I haven't watched it yet. I haven't. Watched oh, you it. you haven't watched it yet? No, no, I haven't watched it yet. No spoilers. Oh. I went to CNN. I found spoilers in the title. Yeah, it is, well, I, I it, won't it spoil just, it. Don't, don't, don't say it. Don't I'm, say I'm it. not. No, we're I'm moving not, on. Anyways, I'm not. So what yeah, I, no, what, no, 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 we're doing this. I'm not going to spoil it, but I will tell you, uh, man, film and TV critics everywhere are panning this episode. So when you watch it, we'll have to talk about it. That's it. That's it. There's no spoilers okay. there. Nope. All right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Also. Everybody dies in an avalanche. Everybody dies in an avalanche. Thanks, man. Okay. So, yeah, no. Uh, absolutely fantastic Mother's Day. Did uh, breakfast in bed for my wife, and then she went and got a manicure and a pedicure. It was it was a great, great Mother's Day. Um, but we're talking about mm, something much different, the movie Mother with an exclamation point. But before we get there... Tyler, what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you excited about this week in horror? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I'm most excited about, one of our partners, one of our friends out there in the horror community is putting on uh, the 12th annual International Festival of Horror Radio Plays. It's a group called Death Scribe. And essentially anybody can submit a 10-minute audio drama script and they pick five to perform live on stage, and the winner gets $100 cash and, like, gets to see all their shit performed on stage. So it happens at the Wild Claw Theater in uh, Chicago and just looks fucking awesome. It looks really, really cool. So I'm excited to see what they're going to produce. And then the other thing, I am reading a comic book called Strange Highways. It's from Insight Editions Comics, and it's written by Mickey Nielsen and illustrated by uh, Samwise Didier, and it is freaking beautiful. It is 
terrifying and creepy and the illustrations it, it's kind of post-apocalyptic not kind of it is post-apocalyptic right so it it kind of hits that particular thing for me and then the illustrations are very like sideshowy very circusy kind of in a very creepy like some something wicked this way comes I don't know. It's I like I like creepy sideshows. I like creepy circuses. This is uh, this might be my thing. I like it. Strange highways. Yeah. I'll have to send you. I'll, I'll send you a copy of it because it's it's pretty awesome. Fantabulous. What, uh, what What about you, man? What are you up to? Well, uh, last week I got into uh, a really old horror novel. Really old. I mean, sixties by a guy named Roland Topor. Topor, and he is probably most well known for surrealist illustrations in uh, Charlie Hebdo. Interesting. Yeah. So he's French. Um, His novel, The Tenant, later became the 1976 Polanski film by the same name. Cool. Yeah. So I tracked down this this book. I'm not going to cop to how much I spent on it. I'm I'm just not there yet. I'm not going to share how much I spent on an old beat up paperback copy of this thing because there's no ebook copies out anymore. I think that there was at one time, but you know, that's a problem with ebooks is that once they're, you know, once whoever's selling them, like decides they're not selling them anymore, you can't find them anymore. There's no like used market for ebooks. So anyways, had to track down this old copy of it, but uh, really, really awesome stuff. Um, And I, I mean, I was just, I was just totally hooked into it. Of course uh, I kind of got the idea from, when I went back and I reread uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race by Thomas Ligotti, where he mentions uh, it uh, quite extensively. So anyway, I think see. we're going to talk we're, about we're, that a little, bit, a little bit later. We're three minutes in and we get our first Ligotti reference. Whoever's got your bingo card tonight, you know, go ahead and cross that puppy off. Yep, that's that's definitely the uh, the center square right there. Also, just got my copy of Welcome to Miskatonic University, by uh, edited by Scott Gable at Broken Eye Books, and it is fantastic. I was a uh, uh, a Kickstarter. I can't remember if they did Kickstarter or the GoFundMe. They did one of those, and I was uh, I was an original backer. And it's really awesome to like see something that you were kind of a part of and help make uh, help make possible. You know, finally come into existence. So um, the cover is a you know the color the cover kind of makes it look a little bit more lighthearted than I think it is. Possibly, I'm only three stories in, but uh, the first story is flat out awesome, and it sets the to- it sets the tone for the book. It's basically about a um, it, it, all all the stories are set at Miskatonic University, the university that is uh, a favorite of Lovecraft, the fictional university, and a lot of Lovecraft tales. Anyways, the first one is about a um, student who is uh, who is a person of color. Who is really, really obsessed with this 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 poet from the twenties? That is, and the poet happens to be a total racist, and it's called "Some Muses Are Not Gentle," and uh, he goes through some uh, some supernatural stuff, and it's pretty cool. And obviously, obviously, it's a stand-in for Lovecraft, but I like how they have a shot across the bow against love about Lovecraft right at the very beginning. It is super cool. Um, the next story, Glory Night, is awesome, and the third story is by Christy Demeester, and that was that, that's the one that's, all, that's all told in uh, in uh, uh, emails. 
And she said when we interviewed her, she claimed that, oh, yeah, it's it's such a fun story. It's all done. But it's fun. It's also freaking creepy, too. It mm. is. It, it's a it's a it's a scary email short story. I love it. I, I, well, anytime we have authors play with form, we love that. And is it safe to say that there is an academic or educational bent to a lot of these stories so that, you know, at least the setting at a university means some teachers, some students, um, uh, yeah, the first one's two students. The second one is, uh, two faculty members. And the third one is, uh, all about sorority girls. So that sounds like my jam. Yeah. Very cool, man. Very cool. Well, I guess that brings us to um, our dark corner of the web, yeah? Dark, 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 dark corners, corners of the web. Well, we're going to rewind a little bit to one of my favorite pseudopod episodes of all time that came out last year. Uh, April 13th episode of 2018, pseudopod 590, Emperor All. Ah, yeah, by Evan Marcroft. What a great story. And I picked it because I think it kind of tangentially goes along with Mother in that it's just like super weird. And there's this super weird relationship between two people. And one peop- one person obviously has all the power when the other yep. doesn't. And yeah, okay. it just so it just so I mean, obviously, like totally different. But just the just the weird factor alone makes this in. Uh, and how the weird fa- factor goes from just being regular weird to being horrific weird. Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yep. And and the more you talk about it, the more it sure seems like, you know, something right out of the mother screenplay. You know, like things take a hard turn and, you know, we'll, we'll save that for the conversation in a bit. But, yeah, great pick. I think the two go really well together. Awesome, man. Awesome. Yeah. And if you haven't heard that one, get out there and listen to it. I think uh, I need to go check out and see if that guy's written anything else, because uh, that is that is a fantastic, uh, fantastic short story. I need to check out some more of his stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah. All right. So, hey, man, we're talking about Mother Exclamation Point. You know what they call it down where I'm at, right? You know what the name of this uh, movie was? It was Mad- Exclama- Madre. No. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was Madre, but it was Exclamation Point upside down. Madre Exclamation Point. Interesting. Ooh, Spanish well, punctuation, yeah. I heard that there was a sequel to this movie, and it was going to be Mother, and it was just going to be Mother with a question mark. I don't know. Oh, oh and then, like, uh, like, like Mike Pence. Mother? Mother? <laughs> right, right. Mother? Get, get me my hot milk. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or perhaps the, you know, the third uh, movie to come out will just be Mother dot dot dot, <laughs> you know? Like, it'll be more of a existential you know, statement into the void, right? I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm, I'm down for that. Yeah. I, I mean, I could riff on punctuation all night long. But All right, all right. So I, speaking of someone we can riff on all night long, um, Mike Pence. Um, so I have a whole bunch of family from, from, um, from Indiana. And you know what they made sure to tell me? They said, you know, Mike, that whole mother thing, um, that's more of an Indiana thing and not a creepy Mike Pence thing. <laughs> so, uh, not I'm to like, alienate our, our deep, um, uh, Indiana following, but 
that that that's just weird. <laughs> the entire state of Indiana is freaking weird, then, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a creepy Indiana thing and a creepy Mike Pence thing. All right, buddy, what have we got this week? What's your essential question? Sure. Our essential question is: How does mother address conceptions of art and ownership? Before we ring that spoil bell, uh, spoiler bell, and get to work on today's lesson, uh, a couple of real quick announcements. Number one. We have the best fans in the game, and you all continue uh, to give to us through our Patreon page. But if you are like the countless tens or twenties or thirty of you all that regularly listen, we would love it if you could head on over to our Patreon page and uh, drop us a dollar or two or five or ten. Not only will you get some cool Signal Horizon swag, but you will absolutely help us continue to do the things uh, that we love to do, which is essentially watch horror movies, examine them, and then give help to hopefully some teachers that would like to introduce this to their students in the classroom. If you are poor teachers like us, then the best thing that you could do outside of the monetary stuff is to simply go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review, uh, give us some comments, what do you like, what do you dislike, or if you want to have a bigger and more direct impact, Go to Horror Pod Class on Facebook. There's a great group there. And recommend what our episode should be. We've had some fans do that out there. And we've used that stuff. We put it on our list. Uh, we even can shop it around to some of our writer-director friends and be like, hey, man, uh, somebody wants to talk about this film. Would you like to come on and talk about it? And we've got some really great ideas uh, coming up for next season especially. So you can follow all of us at Horror Pod Class on Twitter or Facebook, or through our media company, Signal Horizon, both on Twitter or Facebook. Did I cover everything, Mike? I think you got it covered, man. What do you think about uh, opening up our, our Slack to uh, some of our Patreon members? You think we ought to do that? Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Right. And really easy to do. Will uh, anybody that is uh, over the $5 monthly limit will introduce you to the rest of the staff here at Signal Horizon, and um, we'll keep the Slack open. So during the episode, you can add in whatever you would like us to talk about, and we would we would love to hear what you have to say. All right, awesome, man. Let's ring that spoiler about five dollars. Really? Why, why don't we just open up to everybody? Why not? All right, all right, sounds good. I'm getting all right, cool. That. All right, you know what? I mean, I that's 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 Tyler. You know, always, always on the side of the rich man, always on the side of corporate America, you know, and here I am just fighting for the little guy. If you contribute anything, eat just a dollar on our Patreon. You'll be on our Slack and you can Slack around with us. It'd be great. It'll uh, be great. It'll be awesome. I might have to take my monocle out because apparently yeah. I'm a business tycoon now, but yeah, yeah we'd it, love to interact with it. Yeah, and and Slack's great because uh, you know it doesn't sell all your uh, all your data to uh, Russian hackers. Anyway, so on to the spoiler bell. All right, buddy. This is as usual going to be a podcast in three acts. First, we're going to talk about the movie. Then we're going to talk around the movie. I'm sorry. First, we're going to talk about the movie. Then we're going to talk about the theory that we have identified that this movie's using. And then we're going to apply that theory to the movie at the end. So Love Tyler, it. what do you think of this movie? It's weird AF, huh? Oh yeah, man. Uh, I really, I really liked it. Okay. And as we get to deconstructing this movie, 
we are certainly in mixed company when it comes to liking this film. I like Aronofsky, right? Uh, I really enjoyed Black Swan. I was prepared for that. I had read some stuff about the film, so I came. You with like my... Pi, right? I mean, Pi was yeah, he, he, right. This was his first movie, right? Right, first and, big and, movie. And uh, so I was in a good headspace to see this movie. That being said, the spoiler bell has rung. There is a scene towards the end of the movie that is fucking rough. It is the baby eating scene the baby eating scene man anytime yeah. that there's a baby eating scene it's like woof. Yeah. <laughs> this one is particularly graphic and i think hard to watch so like i get how that particular scene rubs a lot of people the wrong way but i, I like i also think the rest of the film that surrounds it is fan freaking tastic so what about you i agree man i love like i love weird movies weirder the better i'm a big fan of david lynch which David Lynch does a lot of the same kind of like dreamlike qualities, um, just very weird stuff, stuff that's allegorical or stuff that's symbolic or stuff that makes you think and think and think and then probably come away with like not knowing anymore. I like that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So this this for me was a was a great movie. Yeah, it's it's a thinker for sure. And the the definition of this film right some i think amazon lists it as a thriller which you know we've had that discussion about whether or not a genre or you know what if there's if there's any movie that's not a thriller i think it's this one right a uh it tends to be it rightfully criticized for being a bit slow you know and uh it's definitely a horror movie like I, i i have zero problems giving it that label Mm -hmm. but i think sometimes people try to give it a different label because it's so allegorical because it's this gigantic metaphor people think horror is you know some slasher killing a bunch of half-naked coeds which is totally fine like i'm down for that movie too but this is a thinking man's horror movie for sure yeah and i think that there's probably ought to be a rule out there that if a baby gets eaten it's probably a horror movie right right, right. Yeah. we just we automatically funnel it into that category yeah mm-hmm. we're, we're not like romantic comedy <laughs> we're like, mm, there's a baby eating scene at the end we're like oh shit doesn't matter if cameron diaz is in it or not it's probably a horror movie. Mm-hmm. right on all right so uh i was a bit disappointed though because at no point in this movie did they do what they should have done, which is use the Glenn Danzig song Mother in the soundtrack. Do you I know that song? Uh, I do know that song. And this is Mother, a little of a little of children a tangent. not to walk my way. Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> I had no idea it was karaoke night at the horror <laughs> podcast. Yikes. Yikes. Sing, so, it with, sing it with me, Tyler. Tell I, your children not to hear no, my words, what they mean, no. what they say. Mother. Not going to do it. Not today. Not today, sir. You know, we tell the God of death, not today, sir. Mm-hmm. No, Glenn Danzig is going to be at Cinepocalypse, the genre film festival coming up in Chicago. 
he's got a like a new movie I think that he's helped produce. So that's awesome. I yeah. would go, I'd go see a Glenn Danzig movie. Shit, yeah, so would yeah. I. I would not go see you giving a Glenn Danzig impersonation. Oh, well. If there is an anti-Patreon page where, like, <laughs> you can siphon money out of a program, right? I- I'm pretty sure people would be trying to find it for us right now. <laughs> if we get at least two new Patreon members in the next week, I will never sing again. So, Tyler, <laughs> what... Uh, okay, first off, w- w- what the fuck do you think this movie's about? Oh. I think this movie is about a lot of stuff. Um a lot of stuff. Great. <laughs> yep, Excellent. That's it. It's what, a lot of yeah. Stuff. Yeah, so uh so if you turn that in as a, a when, when you were in college, did you ever turn it, turn that in as a paper? You know, like answers a lot of stuff. What, what kind of grade did you get on that, Tyler? Uh, uh I, I got an A cuz I could write a bullshit essay really good by the time <laughs> I got done. Cuz I could say stuff 14 different ways. No, I think the power of this movie and what is really interesting about this movie is it offers a myriad of different readings, all of them equally as valid, all of them equally as interesting, and they can all coexist at the same time. So like when you have um, like so Forbes released uh, a review of this film. okay, and I picked it as one to highlight because it is kind of how I feel about the movie generally. Which is, uh, the review is by a guy named uh, Danny D. Placido, or Placido, and his essential argument is that it's a beautiful film, it's really pretty, but it's also really into itself and feels really masturbatory and is mostly about how fucking badass artists are. Uh, or at least like how powerful maybe, or how troubled. And so it gets lost in its, um, internal gaze and loses some people. And I totally think that's a super valid reading of this movie. Wow. Yeah. You know, that's the number one way that people describe me. You know, like, you know, that Mike guy. Yeah, I know. Is, is he the guy over there that's, you know, lost in his internal gaze? Yeah. Yeah. That's him. That's him. So, on the complete opposite side, um, you've got probably the most, uh, I, I'd probably say the most uh, most popular view on the movie. And that is, um, I'll, I'll link to a, an article on The Collider uh, written by a guy named Matt Goldberg. Basically, Matt Goldberg over at Collider sees the movie as a deeply allegorical, old and new testament retelling with Jennifer Lawrence standing in for Mother Earth. Yeah. And uh, but I found some YouTube comments that uh, kind of sum it up. So instead of going to Matt Goldberg, we're going to go to Mint T. Mint T over at YouTube, and this is this is from the YouTube comments section of the trailer of Mother. Okay. Okay. Oh, by the way, there is there is a trailer uh, also on YouTube right now for a upcoming Netflix movie called. Um, I am mother, which looks really. Have you seen it? Yeah, it looks vaguely like. Um, oh, is it Isaac Asimov? I don't think it is. It's a uh, famous, maybe Kurt Vonnegut, that writes about the room in the future that, uh, like, he can create the safari and. I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh shit! It'll come to me later. It's okay. Okay. 
All right. Yeah. Anyways, it looked it looks super cool. It's about a woman that's or a, a a girl that has been raised into adulthood all, all by a robot after an apocalypse. So it looks pretty cool. It's going to be a Netflix original. I dig it. I'm ready yeah. for it. But hey, man, back to the uh, the cesspool that's the YouTube comments. So Mint Tea, right, kind of sums it up pretty well. Says, the meaning of the movie is supposed to represent humanity violating and tormenting Mother Earth. Jennifer is Mother Earth. Her husband is God. The man and wife are Adam and Eve. And the two kids are supposed to be Cain and Abel. If you rewatch it with that in mind, you'll realize that it makes a lot more sense. And then Christy Hughes says, Mint Tea, thank you. And then pretty much it's all everybody saying, thank you, thank you. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, and then we get down to the bottom where Chris Yeoman says, she's not just the earth. And I'm not sure exactly what that's supposed to mean, but he pipes up again a little bit later. So Indy Felix says, hey, thank you for the insight. I never thought about it that way. It was very demented in a lot of scenes. I knew there had to be a deeper meaning. I really had a hard time hearing the baby cry and seeing them torture the baby. I saw that scene as humanity torturing their own innocence unconsciously. Planet Earth could use some waking up. And then, okay, okay. yeah, yeah. And then Ezra Scar- uh, Scarlet says, Indy Felix, actually, the baby represents Jesus. Huh. All right. Now, now, And then Chris Yeomans comes back. No, it does not. End of story. That's it. That's it. I, so, I, so in in a deeply allegorical, I just thought this was amazing because in a deeply allegorical movie where where everybody is finding the deep symbolisms in it, somebody says that the baby is supposed to be Jesus. Jesus is probably the most the most used symbol in sure you know in in literature, right? And then it's sure. like, nope, 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 you're wrong. Nope. Uh, well, I, what I find remarkable about the YouTube comments. If there is a bigger cesspool than uh, anonymous Amazon reviews, it's <laughs> YouTube video comments, you know, but you've managed to cut a section of comments here. That is actually decent discourse, right? Somebody yeah. offers a theory and everybody's like, well, great theory. I love that idea. Blah, blah, blah. And you have some assholes in that route. And of course you have the deeply religious, you know, uh, folks that that want to make that interpretation the interpretation, but for the most part, I think you have found the only decent area of YouTube comments on the internet. Way to mm. go! Uh huh. I'll try to do it for Fox News next time. Probably oh, won't happen. Good Probably luck. Won't happen. Yeah, you can't, I, you can't you can't you can't get a, fi- a a string of five comments without somebody yelling about how the Jews are in the world. Anyways, also uh, wait wait wait. Let me let me make a. Uh, I'm gonna try here. Okay. Okay. The Fox News comment would say, the group of people invading the house represent a group of Guatemalan people in a caravan that are invading the southern border. That's it. Mm, yeah. I bet you I could find that comment somewhere <laughs> on Fox News. Yeah, probably, probably. All right, man. So uh... it looks like you have uh, an interesting little snippet from a time article where Darren Aronofsky is going to wade into this YouTube comment war. Eh? Yeah, he, well, he doesn't, he doesn't wade into just the YouTube comment war. Um, he wades into the, to the whole war of everything. 
shit. Yeah. That's no, a no. serious, that's a serious quest. That's serious, yeah. So, basically, uh, they, like, uh, flat out ask him. Okay, so the two major interpretations of this movie are one, kind of the artist, the tortured artist. Can we just call it the tortured artist idea? And then the um, biblical kind of interpretation. So time asks them, mother, exclamation point, shows people worshiping and then literally tearing apart certain characters. I I like how they didn't uh, do any spoilers. Right, right. Is it a meditation on the consequences of fame? <laughs> and he's like, to be honest, I wasn't really thinking about that. <laughs> That's it. Then they ask him, how do babies taste? And they say, uh, uh, <laughs> yum. Yeah. Um, do you see yourself as the Bardem character, as some critics have assumed? And he says, I felt like I was empathizing most with Jen's character, but I can see why they would think that. I make movies. He's a writer. There's clearly a connection about the male ego, but I'm connected to every character. I was the ballerina in Black Swan. Oh, I was the wrestler geez. in Spy. I was the math whiz in Pie. I'm going to go puke now. Um, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, frankly, whenever there's a uh, whenever there's a writer in a book or a movie, isn't that just a stand in for the guy who wrote it? Yeah. Yeah. Like. I'm totally down for his discussion that he can be multiple characters in the same movie. Right. Like if if he had chosen to answer that question. Like, nah, I don't really associate more with the artist than I do with Jin's character because they are both different parts of me, right? That seems like an honest, pretty well-rounded discussion of the way that we write things, right? Mm -hmm. But now that he is couching things in, like, in in the movies, it feels a little ego-driven, which may be, like, the whole point of that answer, you know? Like, look, man... As writer, writers, we have egos, so we write these characters to reflect what those egos are. I'm okay with that, but I found, like, do you know that internal gaze that I said at the beginning? It only lends credence to the fact that if you are not interested in taking this journey through Darren Aronofsky's ego, then you're not going to like this film, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I hear you. So, I mean, I think that there there's a connection which is... is Probably, if if you want to go back and you want to say Javier Bardem is is the stand-in for God in this movie, okay. Um, there's a if you want to go with that, there is there's a tangential link that they never um, that Aronofsky never really solidifies, which would be like um, with the word, right? Because the, because so many times in the especially in the Old Testament, God God is described as like the word, like his word made things happen. And the word is the most important you know, and that kind of thing. And I think that that would have been a really cool way to kind of nail down that particular, you know, symbol, right. Um, in that he is, he, he's, he's a writer and his words, like make things happen. I mean, really like in the end, like, I think one of the, one of the more interesting things about this movie is like, he's supposed to be the creator the creative one, right? Sure. Yeah. But but what does he ever create? We we only hear 
we hear like maybe 12 words from the book that he wrote. Like he's written books and obviously these people like we are never exposed to them. His wife, you know, reads it and then, you know, has this vision. But, you know, they 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 rarely say the words of the book. Right. I mean, who's the real? She's the real creator. Right. She's the one that like built the house, rebuilt the house. She's the one that's always doing all the work. Sure. Uh, I mean, I think you are leaving out probably the most important metaphorical contribution, right? Like he, along with the help of uh, mother, creates life, right? And it's that life that, uh, along with you know the the new piece of art that he's creating, that really drive the action of the film. But I so I, agree. so I mean so I mean you you you're, you're saying that he's like conjuring up all these people. Yeah, I mean, uh, like I, I think I think there is a reading that yes, like those are all people that he manifests. But it doesn't really matter, right? Like you can you can read this movie literally, and then he becomes like uh, a cult like figure, right? Like then he becomes this this thing that everybody gravitates to, and you know does whatever. Mm-hmm. Again, both I think readings totally and completely valid, but I don't I don't know if I intend. I, I think those people are real. Like I think those people are real because their invasion of her space is really her. Their physical invasion of her space is really important. Like it is not um, a spiritual crisis. It's not a philosophical crisis that she has. And the reason why I, I say that with a certain level of confidence is she already like they 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 give lip service to some of those problems, you know, like they, they address the fact that he is removed. Right. And, and he's got to have these things that she doesn't necessarily love. It is their physical presence in their house that is causing her turmoil, especially through the end of the film, you know. It's not an existential crisis. It's an actual physical crisis that she has. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the I, I think this is probably one of the most brilliant movies to really explore, um, you know, the dangers of bad house guests. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is it? Uh, Benjamin Franklin says, uh, uh, "House guests and fish stink after three days, or something like that." Yeah. Oh, no, I'll. I'll Sure, I, he probably said that. Yeah, yeah sure. It sounds yeah. like a Benjamin Franklin thing to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and he, he he can't sue us because because he, he'd be dead. He'd All be right, dead. so I mean, I think I think that this movie probably um, illustrates very well one of the things that I love to tell people, which is that it's it's fun to kind of overanalyze a movie and analyze a movie and try to figure out what all the different things mean. It's also and find out like what really happened or like whatever, but it's also um, kind of misses the point, right? Um, there's a whole lot of like obviously biblical imagery. My personal kind of takeaway from this movie is that I think it's kind of a biblical retelling. If maybe there were, I don't know, two gods instead of maybe just one. I, I kind of got a little bit of a Gnostic vibe to it. Maybe maybe he isn't God. Maybe he's kind of a pretender. Maybe he's the one that kind of took over creation after it was created. I think that there's all these like different kind of things you can look into it. 
Okay, with, so and, and I think that that's the fun part. Sure. Oh, totally fun. But let's explore that for a moment. I mean, I think the movie leans heavy into if you're going to take a biblical or a religious view of this movie, that there is one God. It is a patriarchal God. It is this artist incarnate, right? Because it's he. It, it's the movie begins and ends with this artist essentially recreating this mother figure to do his bidding. Her identity does not exist really outside of a function of him. So I don't. I, I don't know if I can. Maybe unpack that idea that there is a, a, a dual god image in this film a little more for me because I don't understand. Uh, I mean, I'm just, I, I'm just picking that up because there's so much that she does, right? She is so. She, there's so much that she like physically actually does. There's so much that she physically actually like creates, um, and that she obviously she has some power also, right? It seems like everybody else is is kind of not necessarily powerless, but like. They're just kind of un, like unimportant, right? Like they tear up the house, but she's the one that destroys the house at the end. Um, sure. So, I don't know. I think I, I think that I think that maybe it takes some it takes a lot of cues from um, the Old and New Testament, but I think that it kind of reimagines it in a completely different way. Sure. Which I think is which I think is exciting, and then. And then I think that if you go a little bit too far and you say, like, it is, this is what it is, well, then not everything lines up, right? And then it starts to become frustrating, and then you want everything to line up exactly the way it ought to, and then this should be a symbol of that. And then what was that stuff that she was drinking the whole time? She was drinking yeah. some yellow. Like, what does that mean? You know, yeah. so sometimes it's better to just roll with it and just kind of enjoy the beautiful movie and the feelings that it makes you, you know. Oh, I think I, I think that's totally fair. And I don't think Aronofsky is leaning away from the fact that he is operating on three or four different levels. And, and you know, obviously this movie is too. So it may be a biblical metaphor in the first act. It may be a literal metaphor in the second act. And it may be, you know, a metaphor for ecofeminism, which is what we'll talk about here in just a second, in the third act, you know? So it's important to keep your mind open to all of those as we progress. Yeah. What, uh, do you have anything else to add before we move on to the theory section? I was going to talk a little bit more about Thomas Ligotti. Of course you were. Yeah. So I think that this is, this is a great example of like just the nightmare atmosphere. Like a lot of people have described this as like a fever dream. This whole movie is a fever. dream. Sure. Sure. So, uh, Thomas Ligotti in Conspiracy Against the Human Race has a really good um, kind of breakdown of what that dream atmosphere is is like. And he starts with um, with a, a writer named Radcliffe who wrote Romantic Gothic. And all the supernatural stuff was always de- demystified and explained away at the end, kind of Scooby-Doo style, <laughs> when when elements from the outside show up and help, Right. So the guy that the main character was supposed to get married to, he shows up and saves her in the end. And then, oh, it turns out that, you know, it was all Scooby-Doo style supernatural stuff going on versus Poe, where his like nightmare scenarios make you feel like there is no help from the outside. 
Um, okay. and, 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 and the one that Thomas Legatti really kind of fo- focuses in on is Fall of the House of Usher. And this is the way that dreams work, right? Only the immediately perceivable in a dream actually exists, right? And that is, I think, one of the most beautiful parts about this movie is that nothing outside of the little area around that house really exists to us as the dreamer. Interesting. And that makes it feel so much more like a dream. Yeah, I agree. I think there is a lot of dream imagery in this movie, uh, and that lends itself to the, you know, a metaphorical meaning. You know, like a, clearly that's what Aronofsky's going for here. Yeah, I mean, maybe this was like, this could this could have very well been God's dream, or the goddess's dream. Yeah, I I, I am tempted more. Maybe for the goddess's dream, I, I've read somewhere and I'll try to track it down and stick it in the liner notes. Uh, this film is shot really personally. Like it's very close to Jennifer Lawrence's character the entire time. Like it's oh, yeah. either shot right over, right over her shoulder or through her point of view or everything is really intimate with her. This when she's having when, when she's having one of the kind of like the anxiety t- attacks, like the whole, everything starts to shake. Yeah, right, you're you're, right. obvi- you're, obvi- you're inside of her headspace. Yeah, right. And I think that is done with a very specific purpose. So yeah, totally. Okay, well, but we got to explain th- the baby. Is it Jesus? I think it is. What do you think? Um, I think she's just hungry. <laughs> yeah, those people looked hungry, man. Yeah, they looked hungry. Uh, so hey man, you, you you want to talk about some some ecofeminism and deep ecology? Right? Yeah, yeah. So let's shift gears for a second um, and talk some a little bit about the theory surrounding the film. Before we get there, uh, I think the, the dead baby, you know, the eaten baby, at least to me, and maybe it's just because I'm at this point in like my career, both at school but also with Signal Horizon in here, like. It's it felt like the natural sacrifice that some make for their careers and how sometimes it feels like you're torn, literally in this case, uh, in a thousand different ways. And does your family is too, you know, so that's what I think about that. But I am super interested in some ecofeminist reading of this film. First off, uh, the Faculty of Horror has an excellent mother episode. And they talk about uh, a little bit of the ecofeminist stuff in that episode. You should totally check it out if you want to learn more about um, ecofeminism and, and more about, uh, you know, hear more about smart people talking about this film. So I recommend that. But the first place to start when it comes to ecofeminism is probably a book written in the 1960s called Silent Spring. Are you remotely familiar with Silent Spring? Yep. Silent Spring was all about how DDT was going to kill all the birds. Yeah, more or less. It was the first time that we had somebody on large scale write a novel about the fundamental problems with human beings and their relationship to the earth. And uh, it really gave birth to the modern ecology movement. And well, and you know, it sounds kind of dumb now, but really, for most of human history, the idea was just like, you know, humans small, 
the world is big. Like right. we can't actually do any damage to this because it's so big, right? And uh, of course, I guess there's there is still there are still some people that think that way. But um, this is where it really began to become part of the you know the the cultural consciousness, shall we say? Yeah, totally. And so uh, Silent Spring kind of birthed, no pun intended, uh, this movement called Deep Ecology. And Deep Eco, as a lot of people call it, is essentially the environmental view that human beings are to- so totally and completely fucked uh, that it, it will take a, a complete restructuring of the way human beings approach the environment and approach urbanization, approach civilization to reduce the damage that it has done. And while the idea was way out there, in 1973, the Norwegian philosopher Arne Neus was kind of the first person to coin the term deep ecology, and people thought he was a whack job because uh, he was like, we need to like tear down coal power plants. He was like, maybe we ought to not strip mine you know, Amazonian rainforests, you know, shit like that. People are like, that guy's nuts. You know, what is he talking about? But if you believe, you know, as most scientists do, that global warming is potentially the largest problem to face this generation, like Arnie Neus was like, was correct. You know, it will take a massive public works effort on behalf of human beings to save the planet. And that's essentially what deep ecology was arguing for way back in 1973. So that I, I find that nuts. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of put it a different way, um, deep ecology is the more radical idea from just normal kind of, I guess we would call it just mainstream kind of like, I like the environment, right. Which is like, Oh yeah. You know, some rich billionaire guy building a bunch of, uh, uh, $75,000 electric cars, that's not going to save the environment, yo. It's right. going to have to go way more. In in that in that in in many ways, human beings are uh, the antithesis of nature, right? Like we are, like it's kind of in our blood to mess stuff up, right? So yeah. I think I think I, th- I think when we let's wait to apply to the, apply it to the movie. But I think you got one more. I think you get eco. You want to talk about ecofeminism too, right? Yeah. So the next evol- evolutionary step in kind of modern ecology or ecological movements is a, a philosophical position called ecofeminism, which makes the argument the patriarchy, right, or male-dominated society treats women in nature in functionally the same subservient fashion in the same like ways that the patriarchy keeps women down. It also... Uh, hurts the environment. It also abuses the environment. So often in the way we we approach modern uh, urban a- uh, agriculture, right? Mass agriculture talks about raping the environment of its minerals and using it for only what it has so that it will produce this life that we can then turn around to grow more members of the patriarchy and shit like that. But I think is really, really interesting and the best place to go early on to read about ecofeminism is Fertile Ground, Women, Earth, and the Limits of Control by Irene Diamond. It's the first author I read in college 
that really was able to connect all of those dots in my mind uh, on paper and, and kind of make sense of things. So uh, my argument is going to be that I think there's a really strong uh, eco-feminist message in this. Yeah, I totally buy that. Do you have anything to add theory-wise or do you want to head right to application? Nope, I think I think we basically got it theory wise. Yeah, let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the application. I think that this movie is just does such a good job of just showing just how careless just people are with shit that ain't theirs, right? Yeah, and I guess I maybe maybe if you're somebody that doesn't um, that doesn't hold by our particular kind of theory of the of the movie, or if you're just maybe skeptical of it. A couple of things I would point you to, like three or four times in the movie, she's like, get out of my house. And then people are like, it's like, this is your house, like this yeah. your house, right? Yeah. This is like, what you ta- who are you? What are you talking about? Right? Yeah. I mean, the, there is, and, and it's so, those moments I find really intriguing because I didn't think of ecofeminism. I didn't think of uh conceptions of the artist himself what struck me as so interesting about those moments they i think are really representative of those kind of gatekeeping fans of particular things that are so shitty when those things are changed you know like uh the idea that your fans can take over the space that either your family has or the space that is communal and claim it as their own and not leave it and be really belligerent and shitty. We have seen in lots of different cases on the internet when it comes to, you know, uh, things that were really popular back in the day. I think mostly we see it a lot in like comic book adaptations, right? Uh yeah, and Star Wars stuff, right? Mm. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, so I mean, I think anybody, and obviously, I'm not, uh, I'm not a super famous creator, but um, I think anybody that's even a mildly famous creator has got to feel that that moment when it gets out into the world, and then all of a sudden, it's not yours anymore, right? Yeah, and what a strange feeling, you know. Uh, the only thing probably you and I have to even come remotely close to that would be our our children, right? And the I, the understanding that at some point in time they will go out into the world and be their own fully fledged adults and do their own thing, and that's a little strange. But at least that's a thing that you expect. You know, you don't necessarily think that your art will do the same thing, but it absolutely does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Although my Game of Thrones slash fic is getting pretty darn popular on the internet, I yeah. would. I I think. Yeah. I bet Game of Thrones uh, slash fic period is pretty popular. <laughs> I would say. I would say the Khaleesi stuff is super hot. It's it's on fire. Do do do. So speaking of speaking of fire, what does she use to burn the house down? Fossil fuels. Oh shit! Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it uh I mean it it wipes it wipes out everything. There's nothing left. I think the the one really interesting scene when you and I 
first saw this movie like six, eight months ago, we were talking about doing an episode about it, that we have probably really undercovered is the the really weird turn the movie takes in the internal civil war that happens at the house. And I think the idea that art is often used in war, both on the revolutionary side, but also, you know, in, in the more established side, I think is really fascinating. And Aronofsky is trying to make an argument about that and to have a discussion about that. And it's lost in the greater bizarreness of the movie. But I think yeah. that shit is really, really cool. Yeah. You know, I, I noticed when people discuss this movie, they usually focus in on um, the beginning of the movie where there's a lot of allegorical stuff. And, and a lot of it's like pretty obvious, like, like the dude with um, the, the dude has a, has a wound by his rib, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, well, there were and two they, brothers and one killed yeah, the two other. Two brothers, yeah. one, one yeah. killed the other. Like, do you think that's like Cain and Abel? I know what. Whoa, yeah. Oh man, it just occurred to me. That's totally Cain and Abel, dude. Yeah. So, um, a lot of people focus in on that, and then they kind of jump to the, um, you know, baby eating scene because you know the baby eating scene is always the always the climax of a movie. Right. But you're but you're right. You're right. That whole like middle section that is just it's fast paced. It's just like a fever dream, like one thing after another. There's things are exploding. Yeah, like right. it is just it's it's amazing. And you know, one of the things that I I, I really like about this movie is that if you do think that Javier Bardem is the stand-in for God, oh man, he's he's absent. So oh yeah, so many times, you know, and it's just it, not only is he absent. Everybody is looking for him, and if they can't find him, then they just assume he's on their side. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, I'm doing this for the artist, and blah, blah, blah. The artist wants this, and blah, blah, blah. And, like, Javier, Javier Bardem's over there just, like, drinking a cup of coffee, like, smiling and enjoying all of the fucking attention. You know, like, he's he, he doesn't give a shit. He's just down, down for the, the journey, no matter what the destruction causes. And arguably, that's because he knows what's going to happen, you know? Like, he's like, oh, shit, I've been through this all before. My wife's going to give birth, they're going to eat my baby, and then she's going to blow this whole house up, and we're going to start over. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe change things up a little bit next time. Right. I don't know. Like, clearly, this shit isn't working. Or maybe it is, and he just loves every minute of it. Oh, boy, yeah. I don't know. And then, I mean, it's just like... I just keep going back to the thing that, I mean, it doesn't look like he creates a whole lot. You know, it's almost like she, you know, she does all the work, right? Oh, yeah. I, hey, did you know another thing that I noticed on the rewatch? Did you notice that people are painting all the time? No, I don't know. So, so, so um, the first, um, when they have the um, funeral for Abel, she kind of walks in on two people. One of the guys is 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 that Finn from uh, Star Wars? Sure. No, I don't. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. He he's he he was on something like super super popular. Uh, that was that just came out. Um, Jovan Adepo. Who's that? Keep talking. I'll find out. Okay. So he so he's listed in the in the clips or in the in the credits as cupbearer, right? But anyways. He was uh, the guy in Over- Overlord, main guy in Overlord. He was also, and here's why you know him, he was in The Leftovers. 
That's right. That's right. He was in the leftover. That is an awesome. That is an awesome. Another weird. A weird. Oh show. yeah. Oh you yeah. Got, you got. You got to watch that. Anyways. Anyways. Hey, hey. Add a clip from uh, uh, one of my favorite lead-ins ever is the lead-in song of Leftovers, uh, season two. It's oh awesome. yeah. That's a, that's a that's a great song. I listen to that song all the time. Some say once you're gone, you're gone forever. Some say you're gonna come back. Makes me cry a little bit. All right, so um, he is, uh, and this is uh, you. You're talking about deep ecology. This is some deep symbology. All right. So, 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 so they 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 walk in. uh, So, so mother walks in on him and somebody else, like getting ready to, you know, making out or whatever. And she's like, "You got to get out of here." And then, and then she runs into him like again, like in they're painting her house. And she's like, "Dude, why are you painting the house?" They're like, "Okay, we'll, we'll quit." Like whatever. Well, like later, there's a scene where like everything is going nuts in the house, and there's a bunch of people painting the house, right? And it's just interesting that the only work that anybody else does to the house, okay, is some of the random people that are supposed to be the stand-ins for humanity. They just paint, right? It's just like, look, I'm helping. Look, look, I'm, I'm. You're just painting. Right, the the whole house is falling down. You're painting, right? <laughs> right, right. And, and and I mean, what better deep ecology metaphor is there of like of like oh, but 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 look, we're we, our, our plastics are are ninety eight percent recyclable. It's like you just flew on a plane that burned a whole that that that, that burned a a pool worth of 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 jet fuel. Yeah, but better right. better yet. You just ate my baby. Don't paint my room. Then afterwards, and pretend like everything's fine. Okay. Right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then all Javier Bardem ever does, like the only work he ever does to the house, is to put up, you know, roadblocks in it. So. Oh yeah. yeah, and then to act moody as shit when he doesn't get his way, right? All right. Well, you want to know who else is a moody motherfucker when it comes to this movie? Oh, anonymous Amazon customer. Awesome. Okay. okay. Couple, Which. Couple- a couple of important things to say about this. Number one, this movie is fucking bonger brains on Amazon. It has like 1,800 reviews, okay? Which uh-huh. is a shit ton of reviews. It's a lot of reviews, yeah. Over 47% of those reviews are one-star reviews. That's like over 1,000 reviews, you know, or close to 1,000 are all one-star reviews. It's nuts. I mean, I can see how, yeah, a lot of people would not like this movie. Yeah. Also, according to your theory, too, it did have a run on Amazon Prime. So I'm sure a lot of people were like, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Aronofsky, okay, Javier Bardem. Bardem, yeah. 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 (laughs) And then they were like, what the fuck? (laughs) What is this? Yeah. Yeah. Have have you seen some of the, um, some of the, the theatrical posters for it? They're beautiful as all yeah. get out. They're amazing. They, they uh, almost make her look porcelain. At least the one she and I remember. 
it, it, it looks like a painting and it's done in a very specific fashion. It's done in a very religious fashion. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes, 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 yes. Yeah, she, she, she looks like kind of like a saint, especially when she's holding her heart. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right, that's, buddy. That's, that's not her heart. It's the baby's heart. Oh, oh. Okay. <laughs> so, what do you think, man? We got two on here. You picked them both out. I haven't read either of them. Which anonymous Amazon user user should I read? Which one do you like better, first one or second one? The second one uh, has more to say. Second one has a lot to say. The second one I would describe as a screedifesto, <laughs> right between a screed and a manifesto. <clears throat> Here we go. If I could, I'd give this blasphemous and disgusting <laughs> movie a big fat zero stars. Completely sacrilegious and utter garbage. I've lost all respect for the players who acted in this piece of crap film. All involved, especially the deplorable, smug and sick-minded director should be ashamed. This is not quote-unquote art. This is not a beautiful take on humanity or a spellbinding twist on the story of creation, as some others have stated in their reviews. The director isn't teaching anything to anyone, revealing the truth of the word, or creatively describing the Christian religion to the viewer. He's a smug and arrogant moron (laughs) who just wasted the last hour and a half of my time the film is absolutely sick and offensive to any true believer who holds true value in the biblical teachings of creation salvation and the love of god and his children not recommended to anyone who believes in the word of god the holy or has faith in the true christ jesus almighty love and baby jesus's (laughs) (laughs) you added the baby jesus but i i think you got the religious fervor of uh Anonymous man, Amazon user. I was, ooh, I was getting worked up there, man. I, I think, know. Man, I'm going to lay some hands on some people now. <laughs> I love it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Uh, they got some snakes in Ecuador, right? You could, uh, mm-hmm. you know, pass those around if you wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we don't, we don't, we don't pass around the snakes anymore, Tyler. We just drink the poison. <laughs> right? We drink. We just drink the poison. You cut out the middleman. The middleman's uh, Satan middle. and all of that. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, remind me not to come over for dinner to the uh, Mike D household anytime soon. Yeah, man, I, I think as much as we joke that the big criticism that you read on all of these one star reviews, uh, people got the metaphor and they're really pissed off about the metaphor. So, I mean, I, I think you have to be uh, ready for the journey and then have an open minded, you know, uh, way to approach this movie that it doesn't personally offend you. But if you have a very specific faith, eh, I could see how you don't love it. Yeah, but you know what people like that really liked? The Passion of the Christ. Yikes. It was all in a language that nobody speaks and was kind of like a snuff film. Hey, speaking of snuff films, what are we talking about next time? Yeah, next time we are talking about Cannibal Holocaust and the history of snuff films. Awesome, dude. You, are we going to make our own? <laughs> you first. Um, I can't wait to see it. Okay, awesome. Okay, until next time. Class dismissed. Class dismissed.